The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast, another day, another big slate of earnings. Zillow, Warner Brothers, Lyft, and more all on the move after their latest reports. We're breaking down the numbers and bringing you the trades. Plus, looking backwards, the big trend playing out in the oil markets right now and what that says about where energy stocks are going from here. And we're keeping our eyes on a big shareholder vote at Tesla. Investors weighing in on one of the, on the proposed three-for-one stock split. We'll be watching the vote and bringing you the headlines. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, we have Bono and Eisen, Karen Feinerman, Guy Dami, and Tim Seymour. They all came to play, and we are going to start to the countdown to the July jobs report. The street looking for more than 250,000 new payrolls to be added. A bit of a slowdown from May, but one of our traders says there's actually a different sector we should be paying attention to housing. Mortgage rates have fallen to their lowest level since April and mortgage apps rose for the first time in five weeks. Bonowin, you say this is where we should be looking for hints of whether we're in a recession or not. Why this and not so much payrolls when we pay so much attention to that in the face of high inflation, but still strong employment? Well, they're not mutually exclusive. We got two eyes, so put one on, on each ball here. And so the jobs number is going to be incredibly important because it speaks to consumers' ability to pay for mortgages and service debt at a higher level. But if you kind of look at a few data points, and I have a few of them for you here, decelerating growth around 20% to 13% in home price appreciation, declining existing home sales. Bank of America reported Q2 residential mortgage rates were down 30%. And so you add all of that up and, and the bulls will say, listen, well, we've got, we've got um, constrained supply. And so home prices aren't going to crater. And I'm not calling for a GFC, but you don't need things to crater for us to have a slowdown. We need housing to continue to be that engine that drives us forward if other risk assets fall down. And if you have a slowdown in housing, you have a slowdown in construction, you have a, a slowdown in auxiliary spending around home improvements, and you have a slowdown in, in uh, financial services around mortgages, servicing, and origination. So all of that backs up and contributes to that employment number. And so we need housing to be that linchpin that holds us if we do start to see weakness in employment in other sectors. Okay, so Bono read some data points. Michael Kantowitz from Piper Sandler says there have been four times in a Fed tightening cycle when the Fed did not put the economy in recession, 1966, 85, 95, and in 2019. And in those periods, we also saw an immediate V-shaped bottom in housing data, according to the NAHB. Guy, what do you make of the housing data points as important to look at, maybe more so than what we're seeing in the labor market? Bono spot on with that, without question. I mean, one of the pillars of this rally and the wealth creation has been around housing and it's interesting Stephanie Kelton who's sort of the 
the patriarch or the matriarch, I should say, of MMT. She just came out on Twitter an hour or so ago and she said global coordinated recession. And the point is, if you listen to Jerome Powell back in June, as he walked off the dais there, he effectively said, and by the way, you millennials thinking about buying a home, you may want to think again. And Karen pointed that out at the time. And they're clearly trying to squash a little bit, at least in the housing market. And I think that's probably a healthy thing. But you look around the data points here, consumer savings is at multi-year low and consumer debt is at multi-year highs. I mean, these things don't, to me, warrant a market that's going to continue to go higher from here. Hmm. Karen, what are you making? Is there anything actionable here? I'm just looking at the Home Builder Index, the HXB, and that was up uh, yeah, almost 2% nice, today. It's had a nice run, yeah. certainly off the bottom. But, you know, to guys when we talked about it that day, yeah. It's not that they want housing to contract, it's that they need housing to contract because it is so central to the economy. Inflation is so embedded, it's so high. They need it to contract and that's a sort of, you know, a byproduct, the collateral damage that they're willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're, we're near there yet. So we got a report out of Zillow, which I'm sad because I do own Zillow, where they talked about second quarter, things starting to slow down. Things are a little better in July than June, but for the second half of the year, they're expecting a meaningful slowdown and they're expecting uh, you know they're right in the center mm -hmm. right and so they're expecting advertising slowdown actual transaction slowdown mortgages you talked about which is one of one things they do as well slow down there I don't know if you know I don't know if rates are gonna hang out here that would sort of maybe be okay because they've come in a little so I do think housing is going to be under pressure. The other thing, though, about the payroll data, I don't even know what we're looking for. I don't know what good is. Is yeah. good a better number? Is it a hot number? <laughs> is it a cold number? And then people think, all right, it's cold. That's good. We're going to have the Fed ease up. I don't I really don't know. Bono, and you're kind of shaking your head before I get get Tim in here. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, OK, say say the the employment numbers look worse than we think. And we're saying, OK, the Fed has said, we are not in a recession despite two GDP readings of, of declining growth because the employment market has been so strong. So if it's weak, are we now in a recession? And, and because we're in a recession, does that mean that we're no longer gonna tighten? Is that, is that a bull case? Is a recession now the bull case? Because, I, and if it's certainly too hot, they are not, the, the, the doves, can, can they, they need to migrate, they're, they're gone, they're, they're out of here. And so that definitely isn't the bull case. So I, I don't know what the bull case is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tim, I, I want to get you in here. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can take this and a lot of threads you can pull on, but I was just thinking as I'm listening to Karen here, I mean, the Fed probably wants to see some weakness in the housing market to say, hey, look, our monetary policy trying to cool things down is working as we raise interest rates and we're cooling things off. We need some signal that what we're doing is having an impact. Look, asset bubbles and financial conditions and the housing market is probably front and center. It's the biggest bubble out there. Um, and, and, and of course, they want the housing market to cool off. And of course, look, the, the Fed needs to stay Volcker on this. If the Fed gets off their, uh, you know, their high inflation horse, then we've got a big problem. And, and if you look at both the housing sector, so the XHB, the day that bottom was June 17th. That was when we were at peak Fed mm -hmm. hawkishness. Um, we need the Fed. And we started to hear that this week. Come back after a power 
Powell spoke last week and gave people a sense that, you know, I'm kind of at neutral. We're not at neutral. Um, guy talks about this all the time. We can talk about this uh, till we're blue in the face or until inflation comes back below even, you know, 4%. But right now, I, I do think, uh, look, the entire rally in the market has been predicated on lower rates. We went from 345, 347 on the 10 year down to 257. You've seen what's happened with the inversion of the yield curve. It, it, uh, I think we're 36 basis points or 35 basis points today and counting. So, um, I, you know, tomorrow's payroll number, what do we want to see? We, first of all, we, we want to see uh, job, excuse me, wage growth cool off a bit. And the last number we had a little bit of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it cooled off, but I would say it was not hot. Uh, that's important when you look on a year-over-year -year basis. But uh, I think we're a few months away from this labor market really cooling off. But that's where the Fed needs to be. They're not going to tell you that, uh, but that's the best thing to happen here. Guy, I know you have strong opinions about what Powell has done, <laughs> what he has said. As you look at this report tomorrow, what are you looking for? What do you think the Fed should be looking for? I know you're no stranger to telling them what you think they should No, be. listen, I mean, respectfully, I think he's done a great job. I thought his last meeting he did a masterful job. And quite frankly, they've done a really nice job. The market hasn't cratered. Things seem to be moving orderly. Nothing's out of commission yet. But what should they looking for? I mean, I don't think, again, the job market's in their purview. It should not be. Inflation is front and center. To Bonowitz's point, now I know commodities have sold off significantly. I'm sure we'll talk about crude oil below 90. But even if you take a 30% haircut of that 9.1 CPI print, which Karen said will probably be the peak number for the foreseeable future, let's hope, you're still talking about inflation somewhere in the mid to mid sixes, low sevens, which is still three times where they want it to be. And getting to that 2% is not overnight. They have to stay the course regardless of what you see. The market's taking its cues from weaker data, lower interest rates to Tim Poise. Tim's point, I think they're taking the wrong cues. All right, fair enough. Our next guest warns the market is in danger of giving back July's big gains. Malcolm Etheridge is executive vice president at CIC Wealth. Malcolm, thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. So why do you think investors should not get too comfortable with the gains that we've seen? You think a recession is on the horizon if we're not maybe already in one? Yeah, so I, I've been firmly in the we're already in a recession and just, you know, refuse to admit it camp since probably about April. Um, but I, I was certainly also in the camp expecting this earnings season to be a bit more downbeat, you know, with some bigger misses on revenues uh, and earnings across the board. So it's not all that surprising to me to see markets react so positively to earnings reports that are like less than terrible. Right. I didn't hear any real projections of layoffs or staff or, uh, staff being reduced, uh, you know, just maybe some freezes. And that's really just financial pragmatism more than anything else. But I, I do actually expect that we'll start to get some earning. I mean, some uh, analyst revisions uh, toward the end of earnings season that are going to be less than positive. That could be that thing that kind of cools off the excitement that bubbled up to the surface a little bit all throughout uh, July that we're now talking about. So earnings less than terrible, but a little worried about uh, being able to hold on to these gains here in July. Tomorrow, we were just talking about how we're going to get this this July jobs report, and we're not really sure what to make of it when it comes. If it's strong, is it good? Is it bad? How are you going to be advising clients or trading your own book around this number? What are you looking? What are you hoping for? Yeah, so I think like all of the, the guests have already said, I'm, I'm at least hoping for a number that's not stronger than 372, right? Because it tells us where, it tells us the Fed is likely to get even more hawkish than uh, we're hoping uh, they will be. We're really hoping that uh, we're gonna be going in the opposite direction. I don't know how realistic 258 that estimate is, but if it's got a two handle, 
maybe it does say to the Fed, like, you know, toward the end of this year, they're not going to need to intervene at the levels that uh, they have so far this year. And maybe that spells good news for the markets, at least next year, um, because if they do have to remain hawkish and like Bonowin was talking about, basically kill all the doves that are still out there, that spells bad news longer term than we're really expecting or, or, or than the markets seem to be expecting. And so at least, you know, a, a, a jobs number somewhere with a two handle unemployment rate somewhere around three and a half that we've already come to expect at least tells us you know we don't have to make any changes to what we're expecting right now malcolm it's karen thanks for being on so we talked last week when Powell was on about this uh, interpretation of the pivot and i think all of us on the desk really didn't agree with that they sent out an army of hawks that has been talking all week hawkish hawkish master today particularly hawkish so do you think that the market believes the Fed will be hawkish or do you think they think they'll be dovish come beginning of 23? I don't. I think the market is responding exactly as if the Fed came out and said 75 basis point hikes are now off the table for the remainder of the year. Uh, even so, if I if we see August turn out similar to the way July, I have to assume that there's a lot of folks in there who are expecting they're actually going to start to see some cuts next year, which I, you know, I've heard projected from some folks, and I just don't think is realistic just yet, because there's so many, uh, there's so many unknowns until the Fed comes out again in September and makes a, a projection. But if we get a CPI number that has come down considerably from a nine handle to maybe like a six or seven, I think Guy said, then maybe that does say to the Fed, like, hey. You know, take your take your foot off the gas a little bit. You can hang out here and, and not have to intervene so much. Maybe we're talking 25 basis points, but I, I just don't know how likely that is to happen when, as you guys just discussed, housing is such a large impact on that CPI number. And we haven't really done very much to address the housing supply problem, which brings down that OER number because it also gets folks who have been renting and want to buy into the camp of now bought, bringing down what it costs to actually rent a uh, rent an apartment. And so until we address the housing supply problem that we have that leads to everything you guys just got done talking about, I just don't see how CPI comes down to a to a point that says to anybody that you right. can expect the Fed to start to become dovish. Supply of homes, definitely a key problem that we're no, nowhere close to solving. Before we let you go, I want to get your top pick. This is not a value name. This This is a growth name, but you're liking Microsoft. Why do you like this one? Yeah, so I actually added to my Microsoft position uh, personally um, last week, right after we got their their earnings uh, print. And essentially, it's because I was, again, going into the earnings call expecting Microsoft to say, uh, we missed earnings by X amount because uh, consumer demand wasn't what we projected it to be. And instead, they basically said, we expect to do more of the same. We expect, uh, uh, we basically reiterate our uh, earnings projection that we had three months ago, and we expect the next fiscal fiscal year, the next four quarters, to see something like $100 billion in cloud revenue that's already on the books, I have to mm -hmm. imagine, if they're projecting it out. And so to me, Microsoft being as big and Im impactful as they are, saying basically we re reiterate the same guidance we had three months ago at a time when the market is supposed to be kind of soft, tells me what we're likely to see, you know, in the next six to 12 months from some of these larger mega cap tech names. Wow. Well, Microsoft up about 10% since they reported. So 
Good job on your timing there. Malcolm, thank you very much for joining us here. I'm going to give the final Thanks, word Pat. to Bonowin on this one. What do you make of either Microsoft or any of the broader points that Malcolm brought up there about the I thought he made otherwise? a ton of super salient points, <laughs> particularly like the, the cloud computing business of Microsoft. Yeah. I think that is an area of strength, and I don't, I don't blame him for doubling down on the position. Well, coming up, we've got our eyes on a couple of after-hours movers. Warner Brothers Discovery plunging after its results. We're diving into that feisty conference call coming up next. Shares of Lyft, meanwhile, getting a boost. We'll bring you the numbers when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Warner Brothers Discovery. The streaming stock sinking after hours down more than 9.5%. That earnings call is underway. Julia Borston has been listening in. She joins us with the latest. Julia, what's being said? Well, Courtney, Warner Brothers Discovery shares dropping. As CEO David Zaslav says they have identified some, quote, additional unexpected challenges that have and will continue to require our focus and attention. He's talking about inflation, the threat of, the re- of a recession and the like. He also says they are adjusting down their guidance. They are talking about that right now. Zaslav also going into some detail about the plan to merge Discovery Plus and HBO Max, saying they will start to launch that new combined service in the U.S. next summer, and then we'll slowly roll it out to Europe and Asia, and that they will not rush, but will be disciplined and focused on the profitability of the service. As for what it will look like, they say the new scale of content options and an improved user experience will minimize overall churn and also will improve monetization. Zaslav and his colleagues also talking about the addition of an ad-free and ad-light, saying in addition to the ad-free and ad-light subscription version, they also see an opportunity for a totally free ad-supported version of this new streaming service, and that they would use that to onboard new subscribers who could potentially pay for another version down the line. Um, They also referenced that controversial decision to shelve the $90 million Batgirl movie, Zaslav saying they've taken some, quote, aggressive steps to cost correct. So as they talk right now about some of the challenges, they are focusing very much on profitability and being disciplined, Courtney. Julia, it's Karen. Thanks for this. Do you do you know the last few days you've seen right the Batgirl story and other stories? Do you think they're trying to get all the bad news out? Because this is a lot of bad news and uh, between you know CNN and I mean they're making a lot of changes. It's a really noisy quarter. But if I were they, I'd sort of kitchen sink it. Do you think that's what's happening now? 
I do. I mean, I'm just looking at the notes here and, and that I took on, on the beginning of the earnings call, and they say 2022 will be a transition year. I think they're trying to figure out how to combine the, the, the company and also combine the streaming service. And while they will be disciplined and careful about the rollout of the streaming service, that when it comes to the back end and figuring out what they're going to be doing to run this new combined business, it does seem like they're trying to get all the bad stuff out of the way right now. And probably logistically, it makes a lot of sense mm. to make these big strategic decisions of what we're doing with movies. Do they go on streaming? Do we just shelve them? How do we handle the accounting issues? It does make sense to, to handle all those big things all at once. Lots to sort through. Julia, thank you. We'll let you get back to it. And Karen, I'll, I'll turn to you and let you trade it. What do you make of this? It is messy. It's really messy. I mean, this came out at 26 and has just, you know, it sunk like a rock. I yeah. guess it was up a little bit in the last few weeks. This is disappointing. This will weigh on some of the other streaming companies as well, I think, tomorrow. I don't know what to make of it. It's too messy right now. The transition thing, I, I hope, is code for kitchen sink, mm -hmm. and which is what they should do, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, getting it out once in a very big way is much better than the water tortured, you know, drip, drip <laughs> every quarter. So, I think that's probably true. Tim, yeah. you have any thoughts on this one? Well, I, I think like a lot of these names that were really heavily beaten up, this is a stock that has had a massive move into these numbers. I, I think it was up almost 38 percent in 24 or five days. I, I want to say this about the entire DTC streaming and the bundles and the packages. Uh, and in terms of the sentiment around and the valuations that people are putting uh, either on these MAUs, DAUs or these assets and the content, is, is at an all-time low. I, I think the media sector has been destroyed. I realize the cyclicality dynamics also just in terms of uh, where prices may be challenged so much in terms of the consumer, where the competitive landscape has been brutal. But, but you know, for so many of these companies, I think this is an opportunity. And I, I'm not saying that this is the one you want, although, again, those, those HBO subs and, that, and that, that content was always considered cream of the crop, and I think it remains so, and I don't think enough is given uh, in terms of value there. There's, it's still just so messy from a consumer standpoint, I think. I was trying to figure out how to watch something. I could, was it HBO, HBO Max, HBO? What, what, what the heck am I looking for here? Well, let's pivot on to Lyft because we've got a lot to get through here. The shares of the company jumping after reporting better than expected earnings per share. Steve Kovac has the details. Steve, what's going on here? Hey there, Court. Yeah, Lyft shares are up about, let's see, over 6% now and rising steadily throughout this earnings call after solid beats on EPS and adjusted EBITDA. Adjusted EPS came in at 13 cents versus a loss of three cents expected. Adjusted EBITDA also a solid beat at $79.1 million, blowing away expectations of $20.5 million. Speaking of that, CEO Logan Green saying on the earnings call just now, adjusted EBITDA for 2024 expected to reach $1 billion, and that was sending shares up even more. As for the Q3 guidance, the company expecting revenue of $1.04 billion to $1.06 billion, also saying full-year revenue growth will be slower than the 36% growth in 2021. Also, net losses here growing significantly, up 50% to nearly $377.2 million. By the way, I chatted with Lyft President John Zimmer about that, and he told me the net loss was largely due to a tightening around insurance payments and partnering with large insurance companies to hold the risk instead. CFO Elaine Paul is saying on the call, those insurance costs are going up partly because of inflation. And by the way, guys, don't miss. Zimmer is going to be on Squawk Box tomorrow morning, breaking down these Q2 results at 8.15 a.m. Court, back to you. Thank you very much, Steve. Guy, would you rather Lyft or Uber? I love you playing the game. Would you rather <laughs> Lyft is the answer. And that's okay. been the answer for a while. But I'll tell you, if you look at this quarter, it wasn't a disaster, number one. But then you look at EBITDA margins came in at 8%. The street was looking for, I think, 2.1%. You're talking about a company that had 3.1% this quarter last year. 
So the slowdown, to me, is mitigated by the fact that they're a more efficient company now. They've been forced to run it better. And a stock that traded down to $12 a couple weeks ago, I think in a couple weeks from now, we're going to be talking about a stock that doubled over a three-month period. In other words, I think it's going to 24 from here. Then we'll have a conversation. But this quarter is good enough. Hmm. I still have trouble understanding these companies, Bono. And you've got these net losses. They're saying revenue growth is slowing, which makes sense as a growth company. But, hey, we're going to have a strong EBITDA. What do you make here, Clift? Well, you know what? I think the, the, the numbers from Uber, the free cash flow numbers from Uber kind of, you know, we, we anticipated a strong quarter from Lyft. I'd be curious to see, and you asked Guy to play the would you rather yeah. game, and he said Lyft because it's more of the pure play in terms of this ride share. I'm curious, as they look for growth and if revenue remains, uh, I don't want to say stagnant, but lower than, the, lower than potential in terms of what they're achieving, if they're forced or if they're, they're looking for any strategic bolt-ons to add growth to that core business. And then become a little less pure play of Correct. demand driving. Correct. Got it. Well, there's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Watch out below. Oil prices slipping. Our next guest calls these the lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer for the energy market. City's top commodities expert joins us next for his outlook on where prices are heading. Plus, one cannabis stock is seeing green this month. Will it go higher here? Stick around for that trade and more. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shareholder vote to approve. It's the stock split about to get underway. We're watching the count, and we'll get you the results as soon as they cross. Meanwhile, check out WTI crude dropping below $90 a barrel for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. The drop coming as fears of a global recession put a dent in demand. Look out, crude futures curve in backwardation as oil traders forecast an even steeper drop-off in prices down the road. So joining us now to talk about what all this means for the energy trade is City Global Head of commodities research, Ed Morse. So, Ed, is backwardation a really bad signal here because of what it says potentially about demand, about what the global economy will be looking for in terms of energy in the fossil fuel space? Oh, absolutely. When we had strong backwardation, that means the prompt price was uh, as much as $40 above the 12-month deferred price or one month on month, 8 or $10 uh, one month after the other. Uh, it's flattened out very quickly, very tremendously. It means the market is no longer expecting tightness ahead. It's expecting things to loosen up. And that's largely driven by what we're seeing on the demand side, especially in the U.S., but the rest of the world as well. And what we're seeing on the supply side, it's, it's supply purely playing against demand, more supply, less demand. Uh, and this is something that has to concern companies while it uh, is something very pleasant for the consumers. You know, we are obviously just starting out the month of August, but this can be a pretty active month when we're talking about hurricanes historically. What's the risk there that we could have some kind of a, a sticker shock if there is a big hurricane that hits a key refining area for oil? Well, I think you've picked the one major risk that lies ahead in the market. 
uh, it's a major risk, uh, as we've seen the forecast, the official forecast from the government are for a very active hurricane season. Normally the third hurricane happens, the earliest it happened before this year was August 3rd, actually. Uh, this year we had three named hurricanes before the end of June. Uh, NOAA, the official forecaster for the U.S. government, is forecasting not only 21 named storms, but six to 10 hurricanes, and three to six of those hurricanes could be category three or higher. Now, why is this important in the past? And the last time we had a really significant hurricane season was really in 2020. Uh, and in 2020, we had the pandemic effects on demand around the world. U.S. production fell from 13 million barrels a day to 10.2 because of the drop in drilling and the hurricanes. This year, we've seen the world really depending on U.S. production. Uh, we started the year with U.S. exports at around uh, 7.8 million barrels a day combined prudent products. Uh, the, a week ago, we had uh, U.S. data showing the U.S. was actually a gross exporter of 10.9 million barrels a day. I think that's a record for any country ever. It's not a net number, but it meant that uh, with the Russia-Ukraine disruptions to supply and uh, dislocations, the world, Europe in particular, has become extremely dependent upon U.S. flows. Uh, and that means if we have a hurricane season uh, and we have an active one, and if we have 1.8 million barrels a day of offshore production shut in, or 3 million barrels a day of refining capacity on the Gulf Coast shut in, or uh, 8 million billion cubic feet a day of LNG exports, the world will see that pretty quickly. We'd have gas prices going up even to higher levels, and we'd have uh, oil prices quickly turning and going back above 120 or maybe even 130. So we have that dependence on the U.S. right now that the world has never seen before. Uh, but it is the one risk in, in our judgment, the one major risk to really big disruption in supply. Meanwhile, we're seeing much more supply than demand. We've seen the refiners. I mean, Valero made an all-time high a few months ago. It's pulled off since. What's the sweet spot for names like that, for the refiners and the big cap integrated names? Because clearly they loved higher prices, not so much now. Well, refiners love the cracks, the margin for taking a barrel of oil and producing product. Uh, and that was terrific when we had massively high cracks for both gasoline and diesel. Uh, these have come off significantly. The gasoline crack, cracks have really uh, basically collapsed from where they were. That's been a, a, an issue that's associated with where our gasoline demand has gone. We were through December and January and February seeing U.S. gasoline demand growing significantly year on year. Uh, now, with the latest several weeks of data, uh, we're seeing gasoline demand not only below a year ago, and by that about a million barrels a day, combined gasoline and diesel, but at the lowest levels that we've seen since 2020. Um, that is really remarkable, and it's a sign of around the world. So the refiners are concerned about where gasoline demand is going, uh, and they are happy that, uh, that the price of crude is going down. Uh, but without the product demand, they're not going to get the profits from diesel and gasoline. Yeah, the certain, certainly the oil market does look as if it is pricing in the fear of recession going forward here. Ed, thank you for joining us here tonight. Bonwin, what's your take on the energy trade? Uh, two things. Uh, hedge versus unhedge hedge versus unhedged production. I think that's going to be a big, uh, create a big disparity between players. And the China story. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we, we see them open, we see them close, we see them reopen, and I think that is going to speak volumes in terms of uh, you know shock to the de- to the demand side. Yeah, that is that is really a problem for a lot of different companies, of course, and then commodity markets. Meanwhile, options traders are betting the slide in demand will hit U.S. oil companies pretty quickly. Mike Coe joins us with the action. What are you seeing? Yeah, so we were taking a look at Marathon Oil. This is the ENP Marathon, not MPC, which is the refining side. And here we saw double the average daily call volume. This is following earnings. And the activity we saw was actually selling the largest was a sale of the September 24 calls. We saw saw a print of 1,500 of those go off at 81 cents a contract, ultimately over 2,000 of those traded hands. Sellers of those calls are obviously betting that Marathon's not going to regain the levels it saw even as recently as last week. As a small consolation, though, I think this was probably done against a long stock position. The seller will collect over 3.7% of the current stock price and premium and still will have a little bit of upside, maybe 15% by September net of the dividend, which is going to go X on the 16th. That's a good one. Thank you, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be here too. Coming up, Cannabis Convo, the CEO of Green Thumb Industries, joins us to break down the company's big quarter. That interview is ahead. Plus, Coinbase on the rise. Shares jumping on a new partnership with a major investment firm. Details on that crypto deal when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Coinbase jumping as the crypto exchange announced a partnership with BlackRock that will allow its institutional clients to buy Bitcoin. Shares were up as much as 44% at their highs, closed up 10%. Tim, you flagged this one. I find the timing very interesting as we see the price of Bitcoin continue to fall. Are they a little late to the game on this one? BlackRock. Well, first of all, <laughs> this 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 was this was a just destroying of, of shorts and, and the expression ripping somebody's face off is exactly what goes on here. I think short interest in Coinbase is a little over 16 percent now. It had been uh, probably in the mid 20s uh, about a month ago. You've been seeing some of that come in. Um, obviously, access to BlackRock's uh, uh, client base is an enormous opportunity. Um, being that type of a partner, that type of an endorsement, uh, I think speaks volumes to the quality of what's going on at Coinbase. Obviously, Coinbase has been a, uh, a correlation of one to the underlying price of Bitcoin and to mm-hmm. some extent some of the other uh, digital currencies. So that's the dynamic here. I think uh, they're going to report next week. A lot of that's been flagged. This type of partnership sends a message, uh, and I think it's something that shorts will have to continue to chase. Got it. Bono, and let's stick in crypto. You've been watching MicroStrategy as Michael Saylor steps away as CEO. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I had a colleague who actually flagged this one to me and mm. who's been, it, been in it for a while. I think he actually bottom-ticked it. And essentially, people look at it as a levered Bitcoin play. But what they seem to forget is that it's got an operating cash flow positive software business there. And yes, they have taken some debt to buy Bitcoin. And I believe their break even is around 30 and and maybe they get some margin calls around 20,000 or 21,000. But they do still have an engine there. So it's just another way to kind of play that Bitcoin space if you either don't want to or don't have access to the direct coins. Karen, what do you think here? I think Coinbase is in a really interesting position, right? They've sort of put the stake in the ground relatively early. I don't know the economics of this deal, but, you know, as Tim said, just to have access to that BlackRock or BlackRock to have access to to Coinbase, 
that's huge. I feel like that's uh, that's a game changer and and a, and a stamp of yeah. approval. That's yeah, Very huge important. huge for Coinbase, clearly, obviously investors liking it here too. Well, coming up, a number of big stock movers from today's session, and the traders have their picks for the ones that you should be watching. You gotta stick with us though to hear them. First, seeing green investors in shares of green thumb having a good month. Can this name continue on its high? That trade and more when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out cannabis company Green Thumb Industries, blazing higher this month, up 18% over that period. Shares were down today, though, despite a better-than-expected earnings report, the company posting a 14% rise in second-quarter revenue. Joining us now is Green Thumb CEO Ben Colvert. Hi, Ben. It's nice to have you here. Thank you for being uh, with us on the show this evening. I, this may sound like a silly question, but pricing seems to play such a key when we're, whenever we're talking about cannabis, especially when you're talking about the legal market versus the non-legal market. And then, of course, everyone is throwing inflation in as, as an excuse when things don't go right this quarter. So how does inflation play a role in your company and what happened this quarter? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's certainly a factor. The U.S. consumer is under pressure. But what we can say and say with confidence is that the U.S. consumer is alive and well for cannabis. There's strong demand. Uh, we had record numbers, and you can see we grew 5% quarter over quarter, 15% year over year, and we continue with a strong margin, bringing our EBITDA margin over 30% again this quarter. Are you growing with, with the new customers? Are you growing with increased usage by current customers? What's your demographic makeup right now of, of who is buying from you? Yeah, there are new customers coming in the store every day. We're seeing strong demographics there. But the real key catalyst to growth are new states coming online. In the last quarter, we saw New Jersey turn on adult use for the first time. That means anyone 21 and over can legally buy cannabis. We have a large market share position in New Jersey as it gets going. And there are additional catalysts in the portfolio and in the country, really. We're going to see Connecticut and Rhode Island go from medical to adult use later this year. And in 2023, 2024, states like Virginia, New York, and others. So that's going to turn the U.S. legal cannabis industry from about 25 billion into a number like 50 or 75 billion over the medium and long term. Hey, Ben, it's Tim. So great numbers. Uh, the sequential growth is something that I think investors are very happy to see. I, I think you and I can probably agree that the investment community sometimes is more focused on the macro. Uh, one of the great things about GTI's performance is consistency, predictability. Um, talk to me about the CPG business you're in and what the, you saw in some of those trends. New Jersey obviously was a, a major driver, a new state coming online, high margin. Uh, but the core business is solid. Talk about that. Yeah, the core business is solid because the core U.S. consumer continues to demand cannabis for well-being. And we're in the consumer products business branding our products. So Rhythm, Bebo, Incredibles are gaining incredible traction around the country. We're seeing dog walkers as the nation's number one pre-roll brand. And as we bring these branded products to people in New Jersey, New York, Virginia, Connecticut, Rhode Island, we're seeing a lot of traction, a lot of brand recognition, and a lot of relationship with the consumer. So cannabis is a growth industry. Uh, it's hard to predict month over month, quarter over quarter, but we're confident looking out a year, three, five, the industry is going to be way bigger than it is today. And Ben, have to ask you about macro dynamics, at least. Uh, I'm an investor in the space. I run an ETF. It does drive the sentiment in the sector. So just quickly, anything before midterms, anything for year end that's going to move the market? We're seeing a lot of talk in D.C. We're not seeing a lot of action. But if we can see safe banking, which could lead to listing on a major U.S. stock exchange, which would allow investors and a lot of Americans sitting at home the ability to buy stocks and the products they're consuming, we see tailwind behind the stock. 
Thank you very much, Ben. Appreciate you joining us. Let's trade this. Tim, your take on cannabis right now as an investor, as you stated. So one of the things investors have to always remember, cannabis, like every other high growth, high multiple, high risk sector, um, has traded at, at a beta to the underlying market. And you've seen uh, the type of rally in the cannabis sector that you've seen in other spaces. Uh, the issues, you mentioned it, inflation, the consumer being tapped out. Cannabis was the ultimate consumer trade uh, during COVID. And I think the comps here, and you're starting to see this inflection in the second half. I think you're going to see much better growth in the second half of the year. You should not be investing in cannabis purely on a federal headline you're expecting to see. Do your work do your homework it's it's a very interesting time valuation wise in cannabis karen where are you on the cannabis trade is this something that intrigues you at all or is this way too far off for you to look at look at right now it's i, I don't own any which is different to say like i'd never own any sure. i wouldn't say that um but i just haven't <laughs> I, you know i've been waiting a while to see how things evolve and sometimes there's disappointment even when they do get approval right we right. were talking earlier in the sh- on the break about how sort of black market still, right? right. So I haven't really followed the evolution, certainly not as closely as Tim. I don't have exposure there, but I'm not against it. You know, I'm not saying I've never owned it. I'm not saying I would, you know, guy. No, I won't go down that road, but I'll say we've been saying this for years now. Constellation Brands was so early to this space, and I think they're reaping the rewards now. That stock's within a whisper of an all-time high, and I still think you can stay with this. You know, Tim mentioned this stock for years. I have as well. So the way to play it for me is a name like STZ. The banking issue I do think is key that Ben brought up. I think that is a really, really big deal. Well, coming up, we will break down the big moves in AMD, Visa, and Eli Lilly. The trades on those names when Fast Money returns. We're back in two. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of XPO Logistics. Catch that full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. And don't forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now at cnbc.com slash join the club or by using that QR code right there on your screen. Well, we're back with a trader's choice, digging into some of the movers in today's session. So up first, AMD, the chip maker jumping almost 6%, rebounding from earnings weakness after issuing light guidance on Tuesday. Karen, you flagged the move on this one. Is that because you like what you're seeing? Well, I was surprised at how much it got hit. And, um, but I think the bounce back is nice. However, I still find it expensive, okay. right? I know it's down a ton, but I can't, I mean, as great as Lisa Sue is, and I mean, they're in all the right place, they're, they're crushing it. But some of the commentary wasn't so great, mm-hmm. right? I think she's just being honest, maybe even a little, maybe a tad sandbagging. All that having been said, I still find it too expensive. Okay. Guy, what do you make of AMD? The long-term downtrend that Carter Worth has showed us, actually, we actually broke through it today. So that's encouraging. It probably has some more room in it. But valuation is tough in this environment. I'd rather be in Qualcomm than AMD. All right. Would you rather? Next up, Eli Lilly down 2.5% after missing earnings estimates and cutting its full-year forecast. The drug maker citing lower insulin prices and falling sales of COVID treatments. Guy, what's your take on this one? Stock should have been down 10% on this quarter and the subsequent guide. It wasn't. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll say this. The wild card here is clearly their Alzheimer's drug, which is looks promising right now. I don't want to get ahead of my skis, but if that obviously would be successful, we're talking about a stock that go up 50% from here. So should have been down a lot more. It's not. I take that as an encouraging sign. I think you can own Eli Lilly here. Just as a human, I'm rooting for that Alzheimer's drug. That would be so great for humanity. Tim, what do you make of Eli Lilly here? 
Yeah, it, look, trades at a premium to the peers. Uh, I do believe if we're seeing rotation in the market, you're going to see healthcare stocks and pharma stocks get a bid again. And I think Lilly should be trading at near the top of its class. You've had a bit of a pullback and you've seen, again, some some allocation away from the, the conservative and the defensive stocks. Um, Lilly belongs in an allocation on the way back in. And again, you've seen pharma have a great run. This pullback, not a big surprise. Well, finally, Visa popping 2.4%. The payment processor is suspending card payments for ads on Pornhub and parent company MindGeek after a lawsuit alleged that Visa facilitated the distribution of child pornography on the site. MasterCard also suspending card payments for ads on the platform. Bonowin, what do you make of this one? As they should. Now, I'm going to focus on the result and not on, you know, how we got here. I know that there was a lawsuit that was seemingly overturned. Some people will argue that they were kind of strong-armed into this. Net-net, I'm just glad that they took action. Anything remotely sniffing around child pornography is a no-fly zone, not only from, like, a corporate standpoint, but just from a moral dilemma oh, yeah. type of standpoint. Like, absolutely not. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they took action, and um, I'll be following the case to see, you know, how it develops. Tim, what's your take on this one, Visa? Look, we, we, we just got numbers from Visa. Uh, they basically said we see no sign of a fall off in demand. Their consumers fine. Travel's not slowing down, et cetera, et cetera. It gets to multiples uh, that I, it gets down to multiple here. And, and what do you want to pay for Visa? At around eight, eight, ten a share uh, on 23 estimates from the street, you, know, you can do that math. You're at 25, 26 times. Uh, not expensive relative to itself. And this is where Karen chimes in or Melissa would have the other night. You know, maybe we're in a different environment. Uh, but I do think Visa is, is certainly well positioned here. And their consumers not dead. Fair enough. Up next, your final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get another check on some of tonight's after hours movers. There were a lot of them. Cloudflare surging 21% at its highest level in nearly three months. The cybersecurity company saying revenues rose more than 50% and that it added a record number of large customers in the quarter. Beyond Meat shares, those are down about 1%. The company lowered revenue forecasts for the year and said it was cutting jobs. And Block shares also down after the company swung to a loss and projected volume growth would be lower than expected in July. Those shares down almost 7%. And Warner Brothers at after hours lows down almost 12% now. Karen, what a mess. It is a bit of a mess. I mean, I don't know what to make of it. It's very noisy. I really want to listen to the call. But I think this might be, I mean, it's gotten crushed. Maybe not a three day, but certainly wait a day. You got to shake out. I think we're going to have a lot of analysts disappointed. And so you're going to be able to buy it cheaper. We'll see if the three day rule applies. To this one. Well, it is time already for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim, Mr. Seymour. Let's talk about energy. Let's talk about Exxon. Again, we got numbers out of most of the integrateds last week. What we've heard is, is both CapEx is growing slower than you'd be fearful of in a time that's a bull market, but buying back shares and at a strip, you know, Ed Morse talked about where the futures was in, in back, where futures were in backwardation. Yeah, the dynamic here is Exxon pays a lot of money in divs and pays down a lot of debt uh, at oil prices well below where we are here today. So I think you can stay with these integrated names after a very big pullback. Karen. Yeah, I'll be really quick because Tim wasn't left. I liked it on the way down. I liked it on the way up. I thought Malcolm Etheridge made a very compelling case for Microsoft despite the run-up. Any weakness, I'd be piling into the name. Guy, take us home. We had Joe Kernan from Ohio. I'll take the Courtney Reagan from Ohio any day of the week. MGM. Thank you all for watching. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.